We are in the book of Kings, 1 Kings, starting with. We'll go all the way through 1 and 2 Kings, which is kind of the same book. Uh, it's just split up in your Bible for simplicity's sake. And uh, this morning we've been, I kind of slowed down a little bit the pace to look at the temple that Solomon built because it's, it's layered with meaning for, for us and, and, and Jesus and the church, and it's just it's a rich thing. And so we sort of slowed down, and now I'm speeding up again, all right? And we're going to cover a lot of ground this morning, and we're actually going to get to the end of Solomon's reign in chapter 11 this morning, okay? And the reason for that is I think he kind of, if you, if, there's advantages to reading very slow, the, reading the Bible slowly and studying like every individual verse, but there's also advantages to, to reading through quickly, which is what I like about the read through the Bible in a year thing, it forces you to do that because you're reading fast. Like, I took a seminary class on the New Testament, and we were reading multiple books of the Bible in a week, and it was really interesting the effect that has. You pick up themes and threads that you kind of miss if you go slow. And so I'm going to read a lot of scripture this morning, and it's not to bore you. I know it's a bad sermon technique, um, but I want you to see the threads, Okay. Because part of what I wanted, want you to learn is how to just to read the Bible and pick up on things and go, oh, I, didn't I hear something like this like three chapters ago? And you go back and go, oh, yeah, it's like almost the same statement. Why is that here and also here and also here? And what does that mean? All right. Um, so we're going to do some of that this morning and then kind of I'll tie it all together towards the end. All right. Um, so this is. We've had a lot of foreshadowing about what's gonna, what, how Solomon is going to completely blow up his life and everyone in Israel's life, right? And that's where we go this morning. Um, so, but I want to start by going back a bit, all right, um, to chapter 6, verses 11 through 13. If you remember right there in the middle of Solomon's construction of the temple, in the middle of that narrative, we have this amazing moment where it's i don't know at least god appears to solomon and i don't know how that went down without solomon dying you know it may have been i don't know i'm not even going to conjecture um but god speaks to solomon in these moments and this is one of those moments it says now the word of the lord came to solomon concerning this house that you're building referring to the temple if you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to, your, to David, your father, and I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people. Now, we looked at that word dwell last week a lot, and that's the same word here. So I want to, whenever you see God speak and he uses the word if, a conditional statement, like if you do this, I'll bless you, whatever comes after the if tells you what God's really after. What God, what's really important to God comes after the if, okay? And here he says, um, in this case, God is telling Solomon that whatever sort of house he builds for him, what he wants most is obedience from Solomon and all the people. If you could boil it down. He says, look, I appreciate the house you're building. Like, go for it. It makes, it, it's, it's fine. But I just want to remind you while you're, engraving and putting gold on everything. <laughs> I want you to remember that I'm not impressed by the house. 
What I'm impressed by and what I want most from you and the people is to obey me, to walk and obey my commandments, to walk in my statutes, to follow me, to, to, to be holy, to, to worship me. That's what I want from you most. And this is what Solomon seems to lose over time. Because he gets more impressed by the stuff and less impressed with obedience and less concerned about obedience. This is nothing new, okay? God is just repeating himself again to Solomon as though Solomon needs a reminder when he's in the middle of building the temple. Like this, I'm just picking out one time, but if you read through Kings, you'll see this kind of thing repeated. And First and Second Samuel, you'll see the same thing, the way God talks to David, is what I want from you is obedience. What I want from your people is obedience. And he says it over and over again, and now he's repeating it to Solomon. Let's look ahead now, chapter 8, verses 54 to 61. You'll see this. This is Solomon's prayer, right? Like after building the temple, dedicating it to God, he prays this prayer, this benediction. It's a beautiful prayer. It says, Now as Solomon finished offering all this prayer and plea to the Lord, he arose from before the altar of the Lord, where he had knelt with his hands outstretched toward heaven. And he stood and blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice, saying, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel. According to all that he promised, not one word has failed of all his good promise, which he spoke by Moses, his servant. The Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us, that he may incline our hearts toward him to walk in all his ways and to keep, all his, keep his commandments, his statutes, and his rules, which he commanded our fathers. He's basically repeating what God told him is important to him. And now he's saying, okay, May we actually do that. So at least at this point, Solomon seems to understand what's important. Because that's right in the middle of his prayer. And then verse 61, you see it again. Let your heart, speaking to the people, therefore be wholly true to the Lord our God. Remember that phrase. Holy, true to the Lord our God. It's going to come up again in a minute. <clears throat> Walking in his statutes and keeping his commandments as at this day. All right, so Solomon is squarely on the rails at this point. He is right where he needs to be. He has heard God tell him what's important to God, and he is focused on that, and he's praying for it, not only for himself, but for the people. But you know there's a big but coming, right? <clears throat> and we have another instance of Yahweh. Whenever you see the, Lord, the word Lord in all caps, that's the word is Yahweh. It's like God of the universe appeared to Solomon again, repeating this condition again, but this time he adds a threat. So before, it's always, if you do this, I'll bless you. And now it's, if you do this, I'll bless you. If you don't do this, the following things will happen to you. And it reads like the history, if it was just later in time, it would read like the history of Solomon and the nation of Israel. But it's before. This is 1 Kings 9, 1 through 9. Let's, um, yeah, we'll just read all of it. As soon as Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all that Solomon desired to build, the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your plea which you have made before me. We just read it. I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as for you... Here it is again. If you walk before me 
As David your father walked with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you, and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever as promised David your father. All that is familiar to you now. We just read it. He's already said that to Solomon. You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. He's promised that, starting with David. Then verse 6, but, but, here's the big but. If you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them, and the house that I have consecrated for my name will, I will cast out of my sight. That's the temple. And Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. Wow. Verse 8. And this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone passing by it will be astonished and will hiss and they will say, Why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? Then they will say, Because they abandoned the Lord their God who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and laid hold on other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore the Lord has brought all this disaster on them. Well, that's a scary threat. It will be a house of ruins. And we know, if you know any history at all, we'll read it eventually in Kings. This is exactly what happens. This is an accurate prediction of what happens. Not only the idolatry, but God's response to their idolatry is to destroy the temple. And to send marauders in to destroy it. <clears throat> so you would think... That with all of this repeat, God is being very clear, and the author of Kings is being very careful to point out how many times God has repeated himself to Solomon. This is what I want from you. And this is what, if you don't do this, I'm going to do this. If you do obey me, I'm going to bless you with this. You would think that Solomon would like, I don't know, put it on his fridge, you know, put it on repeat, Put it on a little post-it note on his mirror in his bathroom that he would keep it. It would be on the wall down at the, next to the throne when he's making decisions and doing his king stuff. He would be thinking about this one thing. But through this thread, the book so far is clearly a marked trail that leads to Solomon's failure, not his success. In chapter 10... We get a description of how unbelievably wealthy Solomon became. We'll kind of, <clears throat> I'm not going to read it, but I will bullet point it in just a minute. <clears throat> he had the equivalent of 22 tons of gold in his safe. That's the modern day equivalent of over a billion dollars. Just sitting there in, in the form of gold. This is the peak of his reign as king. Chapter 10 details it for us. The then the narrative takes a dramatic turn in chapter 11. So you get this crazy description of all of his wealth, his horses, his chariots, all of this, the gold, the silver. Uh, everybody is coming. The queen of Sheba shows up, and she's kind of a big deal. And she has quizzes for him, like riddles. And she gives him these riddles to test his wisdom and his knowledge, and he impresses her. And she goes away kind of amazed at Solomon, right? Everybody is impressed with the kingdom and what Solomon has built. <clears throat> it, then suddenly in 
chapter 11, we get this, verses 1 through 8. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, quote, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. That's a quote from Deuteronomy. Solomon clung to these in love. Check this out. Check out the numbers. Verse 3. He had 700 wives. <clears throat> 700. Like when Solomon disobeys God, he really, really goes all in. Not just one. He's already gone got one wife from Egypt, which was breaking the rule. And he said, you know what? I'm going to double down. 700. Let's go. 700 wives who were princesses, meaning he, they were political marriages. They were in the royal family of other nations. And he married them partly, and it's hard to tell if this was a sexual problem for him or if it was a political expediency issue or maybe both. It's hard to tell. 700 wives who were princesses, and 300 concubines. <clears throat> That's a thousand. A thousand women. And his wives turned away his heart, just as Deuteronomy predicted. Just, hmm, I don't know, 700 different directions at least, really a thousand different, his heart turned in a thousand different directions. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God. I told you to remember the words, wholly true. God said, if your heart does not remain wholly true, I will bring this house, make this house a house of ruins. As was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites, so Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of, the Mo of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites. Molech was the one that sacrificed babies. Hmm. All on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. Made offerings and sacrificed to their gods on the high places around Jerusalem. Some of which are in sight of the temple that he had built. They're making sacrifices to other gods. What in the world? It's sad, isn't it? It's disquieting when you look at the epicness of his rebellion against God and how far he's come from just a few verses before that I read to you where he stands before the people at the temple he just built and he says, oh, may we follow God and walk in his ways and keep his rules and statutes and commandments 
and we worship him forever and only him. And he's standing there with the, 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 the smoke of the presence of God behind him pouring out of the Holy of Holies and the incense going up. To go from that to this is astounding. I think we can learn a lot of things. I'm going to give you a few. The first thing is that obedience is greater than giftedness. With all of Solomon's God-given wisdom, he failed to do the most wise thing, which was fear the Lord. It's his, his giftedness actually becomes a judgment in itself. Like he should have known, of all the people that should have known better, it was Solomon. Of all the people that had the wherewithal to understand, I need to obey God, fear the Lord, it's the beginning of wisdom. He may have actually written that himself in Proverbs. That of all the people that knew better, it was Solomon. His amazing giftedness did not allow him to bypass God. No matter how wise or strategic he was. Because even if you say, well, it wasn't a sexual thing with Solomon, it was a, a political expediency. All the women, all these a thousand women that he brought in and allied himself with, it was all to protect Israel. That's probably what he said. That's probably what he told himself. Look at the, the, the gold that comes in with them. Look at the protection. We are, we are at peace with everybody because I have married these women. The problem with that strategy is that God said, don't do it. <laughs> On paper, it might have looked good, but before God, it was disobedience and rebellion. His enormous potential was salt in the wound of his failure to obey God. So here's the first lesson is, if God is for you, who can be against you? Yes, but if God is against you, it does not matter how good or competent or wise you are. If God is against you, you're not going anywhere. And that's the mercy of God. Wouldn't it have been a mercy if God had thwarted Solomon's ability to amass all this wealth? Because he was doing it in a way that God was not for. But God let him. God gave him some rain. He gave him a little, a little extra room in the leash and let him run for a bit to see how far he'd go with it. You ever do this with your kids when they're toddlers? It's amazing. I don't recommend it. But I've been at like in a, like in a gym or some open space where it's pretty safe and they're, they're just walking and they think they've got, like, they start walking, and they think they've got it. I'm good. I'm an adult now. I can take care of myself. Leave me alone. They'll run from you when you try to pick them up. And if you just walk behind them and just see how far they'll go, with, where they don't, they think they're going off on their own, and just watch. They, they would walk out into traffic. And they'd be dead within the hour if you just let them go. It's amazing, the human heart. I got this. And that's God lets him run a little bit to see how far he'll go. And he goes all the way to 700 wives and 300 concubines. And God says, enough is enough. What's amazing about this to me and scary to me is he doesn't just jump in 
to the deep end of his rebellion, he goes slowly. There's a slow, gradual turning away. And that scares me because that means I could slowly turn away. His heart was not wholly true to the Lord as God. That's chapter 10, verse 4. It's also mentioned a few verses before that. Solomon's allegiance to God slowly dwindled until he eventually began worshiping false gods and building high places for them around Jerusalem. But he didn't start there. He started with one Egyptian wife that he knew God told him not to marry. And it worked out well. That's part of what enabled him to build the temple. Well, that seems like God really put his stamp of approval on my thing that I did. I did the, I broke a rule, no big deal. God still blessed me. It worked out. Must be fine. Let's try it again. Oh, that worked out well. We got richer. Let's try it again. And we try it again, and we try it again, and next thing you know, the count is up to a thousand. And things have gotten really crazy. Solomon was certainly responsible for his idolatry, but as I read this narrative, all the foreshadowing that's put there is kind of an inevitability. If you read back in Samuel, what God says will happen when you get a king, it is this. Solomon was always going to do this. He didn't have the character to stand up to, the power and the wealth that he had. Nobody was telling him, Solomon, God says don't do that. Like, who would? You just might have your head removed. He's the king. I think it's interesting to look at. I made a little table in the notes. I think we have it up on the screen. But I have a couple of quotes from Deuteronomy 7 and Deuteronomy 17, which is where God gives, before they have a king, God gives rules for kings. He says, if you're a king, here's what you do and don't do. Right? Very clear list of commandments. And I just put next to it what Solomon did. <laughs> and every single one of them, like there's a list, like he had a checklist in his mind of the things he was going to do, and he missed the do not do part. He just took the word not out of Deuteronomy 17, and he just said, this is my roadmap for how to act. It's amazing. So under the rules side, we have no alliances or marriages with people from the land of Canaan, especially Hittites. They're mentioned. Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 5. Solomon married Hittite women. 1 Kings 11, 1. Kings are to tear down altars to false gods. That's also Deuteronomy 7. Solomon funded and built, personally built, altars to false gods around Jerusalem. Deuteronomy 17 is a list of about four things. A king shall not, one, multiply horses for himself. Two, return to Egypt or allow others to. Three, multiply wives for himself. <laughs> Number four, greatly increase gold and silver for himself. Those things are specifically mentioned. And then on the what did Solomon do side, number one, he acquired many horses and chariots for himself, almost uncountable. Many of those horses were from Egypt. Thankfully, an alliance supplied by his first wife. Three, acquired 700 wives, 300 concubines, and four, stockpiled 22 tons of gold and many articles of silver. Probably the many just means there's too many, nobody counted it was too much. They counted the gold, but the silver was just too much. 
So the author, why does the author do this? He quotes Deuteronomy 7.7 and Deuteronomy 17. He's showing us Solomon's epic failure. He's not doing this to make it general. He's showing you specifically. The author is showing us that Solomon failed to obey God's commands regarding the specific things he required of kings. God established the rules then reminded Solomon to obey them multiple times. And from the beginning of Solomon's reign, he systematically failed to obey those rules despite his tremendous wisdom. It's like a lawyer standing before a judge and reading every single offense, line by line by line. That's what the author of Kings is doing to Solomon. And what's hard about this, I told you there's bad news in Kings, is that Solomon really is the precursor, the model, in a negative sense, for the kings to come after him. He's just the precursor. He's like the intro to what kings do, right? He's the precursor to all the kings that would fail in the future, leading us, of course, to the once and for all fully righteous king to come that would obey God perfectly on our behalf because Jesus comes and he takes the list and he obeys everything. Jesus, I think it's why Jesus was not married. Ever wondered that? Why would... I mean, he, he would be the perfect husband. It would be amazing. We could, we could see what Jesus was like as a husband and, and really learn a lot. I've often wished that would, that could help me out a little more specifically, right? Now I have to imagine what Jesus would be like as a husband. I think, my theory, at least one reason is this. What's the opposite of what Solomon did? And every other king after him, no marriage. Also hope to all the single people. Jesus was poor. He had no house, no roof over his head at all. He lived on the hospitality of others. That's the kind of king he is. No gold, no money. If he ever had to pay taxes, he'd had to go perform a miracle and pull it out of a fish's mouth to pay his taxes. That's Jesus. That's the kind of king he is. And that's who he's called us to be. That's who lives within us. It's a completely different kind of kingdom that was coming. So Solomon, long before Solomon was building altars of worship to false gods in the high places, he pulled his heart away from God and gave it to women that God had told him not to marry or align himself with any way, in any way. Or maybe you could say he, he, gave, him, he gave himself not to the women so much as he gave himself to the power and the influence that they gave him. Either way, he gave it to something other than God, and it was a slow division of his heart over time. Interestingly enough, this was a very common practice for other kings and other kingdoms at the time. This is what everybody, this would have been when all the kings got together for dinner parties. They said, what, what are you doing to grow your kingdom? They said, oh, this is great, I just... Married this woman from Persia. She's a Persian princess. Now I'm in with Persia. And now I'm in with the Babylonians. And now I'm in with, and you should try it too. Solomon goes, oh, great idea. It's sort of a shortcut. Instead of building on God's blessing and letting God bless me, I can build it another way. In fact, it would have been weird not to marry many women for political reasons. 
If Solomon didn't do that, he would have been out of step with the world. Solomon, at the start of his reign, probably never imagined that he would one day find himself building altars and making sacrifices to false gods within the sight of the holy temple that he had just built. He probably could not imagine it at the beginning. So can you see that we're in the same danger? The slow turning away, the slow dividing of the heart, one act of disobedience at a time, small And then we look around and we say, well, nothing bad happened. It's all right. I can continue down this path. It's fine. It's perfectly safe. God doesn't seem to be paying attention. He doesn't seem to care. He's not bothered by what I'm doing. This by far is the great concern of the New Testament writers as new Christians are scattered through persecution away from Jerusalem into the Roman and Greek world. If you read 1 Peter, that's what he's concerned about. 1 Peter 1, 13-25 talks about this specifically. Peter's writing to the Christians in exile out there far away from the influence of Jerusalem and the church there. And what he's concerned about is not just their comfort. I'm trying to comfort you. It's a hard thing. It's a hard place to be. What he says over and over and over again is stay holy. Keep the faith. Stay strong. Keep each other accountable. Don't drift away. Don't Don't adopt the ways of the world in which you live. Stay true to God. Follow his ways. Obey him. Walk in his rules and statutes. Just like Solomon heard from God. The idolatry that we are most susceptible to is not building altars on hills. I mean, I don't know how many of us are doing that. I hope none of us are doing it. Don't do that. Build altars to false gods, shrines in your house, all those sorts of things. But I don't think that's the temptation for most of us. It's what comes long before that. It's the bowing down in our hearts to trinkets, ideologies, and people. And seemingly small things or even good things. Look at the results of Solomon's idolatry. You could easily look at that and say, well, that's really good for the kingdom of Israel. Look at the way God's blessed us through Solomon. (laughs) Meanwhile, God is not happy. The trinkets, the things, the stuff, the devices, the technology, the, the, the houses, the cars, the stuff, the stuff that fills the landfills in our country. All that stuff that we fill our homes with and fill our lives with, it's easy to make those things the things we chase after and not God. The ideologies, the belief systems that don't come from the Word of God but feel good. There's lots of those. They feel better than the things I read. Like, I don't like to hear the word no. I don't know about you. Nobody does. And sometimes God says no. God said no to Solomon. Don't marry that woman. It's not, she's not, she's going to lead you. She's an idol worshiper. Don't, don't do it. He goes, but I really want to. I like it. I want to. And he says, no. He says, but I think I will. Don't do it. I told you if you do that, this is going to happen. He says, yeah, I think I'm going to. You'll let it go, right? God says, for a season, I'll let it go. 
the people. We don't want the world to be unhappy with us. We don't want people to be mad. We don't want to be the ones that say no to other people. We don't want to suffer the, the dis- dislike and the anger and the vitriol that comes from the world when we act like there's someone above us who tells us what life's about and what we believe. When we say something is true and something else is not true. When we draw lines in the sand over things that God is clear about, the world gets upset. And let's be honest, we don't like that. If you like it when people are mad at you, you've got another set of problems. There's something wrong with you. You shouldn't like it. But we shouldn't bow down in fear to the world either. We shouldn't be, well, this is what they do in the business world. Let's, let's, we'll just bring that in because it works. What Solomon did worked. Solomon was a pragmatist, I think. I think that's what he became. All of his wisdom ended up working against him, and he start, pragmatism is the ends justifies the means. If it works, it's good. How I get there doesn't matter. So in the church world, we could say, as long as people are coming, it doesn't matter how we get them here. Right? That's pragmatism. You can easily do... God cares not just about... He's in charge of the ends. It's the means he wants us to obey him in. How you, God cares how we worship him. He cares how we act towards each other. He cares that we love one another, right? That's not an ends, that's a means. How we act, how we do things, the holiness of our actions, our dependence on him, these are all important to God. So allowing the world, I have three bullet points here at the end, allowing the world to determine your values regarding life, Ethics, identity, sexuality, what you prioritize is a path that leads to ruin. Letting the world tell you what should be important to you. Letting the world tell you what you should believe. Letting the world tell you what you should feel and what you should be concerned about, what you should worry about, what you should be passionate about. Letting the world set those values for you is a path that leads to ruin. There's no quicker way to turn your house into a house of ruins than to live that way. Secondly, it's quite possible to disobey God while claiming to do good for him. But with God, the ends do not justify the means. Ungodly means create ungodly results every single time. By the way, I think the opposite is also true. I think if Solomon had obeyed God, God would have blessed him because he promised to. But even if God hadn't, The fact that Solomon obeyed God would have pleased God. And that's what matters. It's not the stuff, not how great the kingdom is. What matters is that God's happy with what I'm doing and how I'm doing it. That's what matters. It doesn't matter what's in your bank account or how big your house is or how blessed you appear to be by the world and your Christian friends. What matters is that you obey God and that he's pleased with how you're doing, you're living your life. And lastly, every Christian drifts away from God without help. You need to hear that. Solomon was the best of us. Okay, don't don't think any different about him. He was smarter than you. He was more wise than you. 
He had every resource imaginable to do great things for God. From his own gifting and competency to the people just did whatever he said. They were all volunteered to do whatever he said. He had all the resources available and he still drifted away. The same is true for you and I. We guard our minds by filling it with the word of God. We guard ourselves from temptations by surrounding ourselves with Christ-centered community. We guard our worship by worshiping together. Part of what happens when you worship together is your worship gets reoriented around Christ and off of yourself and your own life. We keep our hearts dependent on Christ through prayer and fellowship. We remind ourselves of the gospel through the breaking of bread. We do these things and more because we need them. You need it. You read the word not because you're ticking off some box to make God happy because you read your Bible today. You read it because if you don't, you're, you will think wrong things. It's, it's not an if. It's a true thing. It will happen to everybody in this room. If you don't fill your mind with the word of God, you will start thinking stupid things about the world and about yourself. It's the only way to guard your mind. We drift if we don't build things into our life. This is part of the message of the book of Hebrews, which I'm not doing. We're almost out of time. All of this, I want to point out to you, is about relationship with God. He wants relationship with you, meaning he wants to engage with you. He wants to bless you. He wants to love you. He wants you to love him back. He wants to talk to you. He wants you to talk to him. He wants your undivided attention. He wants your whole heart to contrast it with Solomon. He wants all your heart, not just part of it. He wants all of you. He wants to be, he walk with you in the cool of the day, like he describes with Adam and Eve. That's what he wants with you. And idolatry is just taking your affection and your attention and giving it to something else that satisfies what only God should satisfy. It's trying to squeeze life out of an inanimate object. Like imagine an idol made with hands, a created thing. Something that you made, this is idolatry. You make it and then you ask it to give you life. Protect me. In this case, it was things like fertility and blessing your crops. Instead of praying and asking God to bless the crops, you pray to your idol. Instead of praying to God to make you pregnant and give you children, you pray to your idol of fertility. It's ridiculous. But we do the same thing. We walk around to that new car and we try to squeeze life out of it and it says I can't give you life I'm a thing <laughs> and we get all disappointed it's that day after Christmas feeling we feel over and over and over again I look forward to Christmas and all the stuff and I got the stuff and I feel a weird emptiness inside after that is God telling you don't worship idols it's just stuff Your idolatry takes you away from relationship with him and into relationship with created inanimate objects. Thinking about Heather and Vic's word earlier, I just want to tell you, stop chasing the stuff. Whether it's your own ability, your own competence, which is what Heather said. I've got 
ways of dealing with my life and overcoming my problems, whether it's my intellect or some skill or ability or something I've learned, and I'm gonna, I can get through life okay with the stuff. Or maybe it's just you chasing success in your career. Like If I could just get to a stable financial place, then my family will be okay. No, it won't. Not in the things that matter. You will get no life or security out of this world. It cannot give you what you're hoping it will give you. It cannot. The only thing that can give you the stuff that matters is chasing after God. This is Ecclesiastes, which Solomon may have written. Isn't that a fun thought? Someone's like, you need to stop right here and do a whole series on Ecclesiastes, and it would blow our minds. Because he walks around, he says, I've tried everything, I've done everything, I've been to the top of the mountain, I've been to the valleys, I've given everywhere, I've, I've spoken with all the smartest people, I've had all the women the world can offer, a thousand. I've had all the wisdom and the philosophies and the different religions and different perspectives. I've talked to the smartest people. We've done all of it. I've tried all of it. Every food, everything that you can experience in this life, I've tried it. And he says it's all meaningless. It's a vapor. The stuff you're worried about is probably meaningless. Unless you're worried about drifting away from God. <laughs> That's not a meaningless concern. <laughs> the things of this world are empty and they cannot satisfy and they cannot give you joy. We've got to remind ourselves of that. coming up on an election and this is going to be hard to remember because everybody around you everywhere you look people you look up to and people you don't like will all be telling you this is the most important moment in history and you need to be freaked out and if only the following people will get elected and it's always a different set of people. But if the list I have compiled, I have compiled for you a list of our current saviors, the kings that will rescue us, be concerned. If, you, if this list is not perfectly represented after the election, we're all doomed. And it's, look, I'm not telling you who to vote for because it's just another king. They will disappoint. We already have a king, and his name is Jesus. Vote, participate, be a good citizen, yes. But don't get your heart wrapped around the axle, and don't get distracted. Don't divide your heart to other kings and other kingdoms. Chase after the one king. Fill your perspective and your heart with him. And at the end of the day, kings will come and go. Nations will rise and fall, but the kingdom of God is forever. And that king <laughs> is righteous. And he is full of life and joy. And when you pray to him, he answers. He's not some idol made of stone or in our case, silicone and glue and glass. He's a real king who really answers and really hears you and knows what you need before you ask him. He hears your thoughts. He sees your deepest 
thoughts in your heart and he knows you inside and out. He has counted the hairs on your head. He knows everything about you and he has plans for you. And when you talk to him and you knock on his door, he answers and he gives you life and renewal and redemption. He gives you a future. Wouldn't you rather run to him and chase after him than some stupid thing that's going into a landfill that won't even outlast you? And your life is a vapor, according to Solomon. It won't even outlast you. And you're so worried about it. This is, I think this is the lesson of Solomon. I think this is what he would say if he was standing here, is don't be like me. Trust me, I, I took one for the team. I tried all the things that you're chasing after. All the things you're tempted by, I actually tried them all. And it was pointless. Don't do it. So I want to pray for us that God would guard our hearts and our affections and keep them focused on him. And then we're going to worship together. And that's what worship is for, right? It's for aligning your heart back to him. It's for saying, okay, I've been chasing after other things and, and my, my mind and heart is all over the place and I, I hate that and it scares me. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to focus myself on you. That's what worship is. So we're going to do that in response. So why don't we stand together? And I'll pray, and then we'll worship. God, we confess to you that we all have different idols that tempt us. Different solutions to the things we are worried about or passionate about. Everybody's got their own version of that. God, we just confess that to you right now, that our hearts are prone to wander, as the hymn says. And we ask you right now that you would, in this moment and in every moment going forward, Holy Spirit, would you keep our eyes and our hearts trained on you and you alone. Whatever trinkets or worries or shiny things concerns about the future concerns about children concerns about marriage and all the and 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 friends and neighbors and the world and what's happening with our country and our culture and all of these things that jump and twist and turn in front of us just just divide our hearts Lord, would you give us eyes only for you? Yes. Keep our eyes trained on you. That we would have filters over our eyes, the eyes of our heart, that would render us just undistractable from you. He would stir the, our love and affection for you this morning once again. Holy Spirit, would you fill us with love for God? Yes, yes, yes. Help our own worry to diminish in the sight of you. God, we once again give our lives over to you. We give our hearts to you. We give our thoughts to you. 
God, I pray that we would think your thoughts and feel your feelings and walk in your ways, God, that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ would lead us into obedience to God. God, if there's anything in our life right now where we are disobedient to you and we have diminished it like it's just not a big deal, you seem to be fine with it. God, we repent of that. We turn away from it. Forgive us. Now, we don't need this world. We don't need it. We want you to rescue it. We don't want to join them. We want to rescue them. So God, would you send us into the world? And God, I ask for a harvest in this church. God, that the low-hanging fruit would fall in our laps. God, give us boldness as we are chasing after you and you alone. God, I pray that it would stir up the world to wonder not as you prophesied over Israel that they would walk by and hiss and say, what What did they do to make God so mad at them? But God, instead they would walk by and they would see our love for one another and our love for you, our devotion to you, and they would wonder how they are so blessed. So Holy Spirit, we ask you to help us be worshipers. Help us to walk in obedience to you, God. In the name of Jesus. Amen.